Our uh, reading this morning is from Mark 10, 46 through 11, 11. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom, the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. Well, as we turn and look at God's word this morning, would you bow with me in another quick word of prayer? Our Father, as we come to you and hear your word this morning, I ask in this short time we have together and considering these two stories, I ask that you'd help us to see Jesus clearly, help us to see him more and more for who he truly and fully is. I ask your help to, to help me to speak clearly and faithfully of your word, And of you, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would work conviction and faith, comfort and joy, love, endurance, and courage in each of our hearts as we hear from you this morning and as we look to you. We pray these things gratefully in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank God for corrective lenses. Amen. Perhaps some of you, like me, have terrible vision. Uh, Second grade, I got glasses. For more than 20 years, I've worn contacts. If I wasn't wearing my corrective lenses, I couldn't function. I certainly couldn't stand up here and read my notes and and look out at you and and know who was who. Uh, If you're familiar with the Snellen vision chart, do you know the Snellen vision chart with the letters? Uh, I would not be able to read from across the room or even halfway across the room, the top row. 
without corrective lenses, I can see, but I can't see. And recently we've been going through the Gospel of Mark week by week, considering teachings and healings, actions of Jesus, and here today we come to the end of a section, the end of this section, where the author has been using the theme of blindness not only to show Jesus' amazing power and compassion and healing, but especially and thematically to use the idea of blindness to connect this group of stories and to show how Jesus' audiences and even his disciples have not seen and understood Jesus clearly. At this point, I should say, at, and the point for Mark is not to criticize the disciples in the crowds or just point out that they're wrong, but the point for Mark that he intends is to open our eyes as his readers to give us a clear vision of who Jesus is and what he's doing and what Jesus is inviting and instructing us to do. And this theme of blindness has been present. We're now in chapters 10 and 11 today. It's been present ever since chapter 8 where Jesus asked and introduced the theme saying, having eyes, do you not see? They're seeing Jesus, they're hearing Jesus, they're even seeking and trying to follow Jesus, but, but they repre- repeatedly prove themselves to be blind to who Jesus really is, to what he's doing, what he's saying, what he's teaching in this, this whole section from 8 to 11. Repeatedly, they're seeing and they're not seeing Jesus at the same time. In these recent chapters in Mark, there have been numerous instances of Jesus caring for the hurting, the hungry, the helpless, the outcast. He's honoring the humble. He's humbling those who would exalt themselves. And he teaches, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And Jesus also says, whoever would be great must be a servant, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many recently if we look back at recent weeks we would see twice jesus has valued and welcomed children twice he's healed blind men but still twice the disciples seek to be honored arguing and posturing over who's the greatest among them And the crowds, too, want their blessings, their political victories. The crowds and the disciples, they're not seeing Jesus while they still see him. And we can and we do do the same things, right? We can see and and not see. We can listen and receive and affirm God's word conceptually, but then struggle to still follow him faithfully. Don't we? And so as we turn to this passage today, uh, this passage about Bartimaeus being healed of blindness, and also Jesus entering Jerusalem on the donkey, to the shouting of the crowd we ask, what can we learn and observe here from God's word about seeing and not seeing Jesus? So first we're going to look at the persistent plea of the blind man. Secondly, the ironic parade. And thirdly, at the praise of a king. So the plea, the parade and then the praise. So looking at this plea of a blind man, today's passage, as we heard, begins outside of Jerusalem and Jericho, which is a place of significance in the Old Testament. 
particularly in the book of Joshua, if you remember Rahab and the spies, that took place in Jericho. If you remember, Jericho was the first place where Israel crossed, the people of Israel crossed into the promised land as they crossed the Jordan River. And Jericho, of course, most famously was, was also the place where Joshua led Israel to their first victory, the first initial triumph as they entered the promised land. And as Jesus is now nearing almost to Jerusalem, today's passage begins also outside of Jericho with a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus had heard that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he calls out to Jesus saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy or, or have pity on me. And then at that point, many in the crowd attempted to silence him, but Bartimaeus remains persistent. He doesn't give up. He knows his need, and he believes Jesus to be good and to be his only chance. And so he ignores the silencing of the crowd. The crowd who saw him, much like the children in chapter 10 were seen, as an annoyance, as an interruption, as an inconvenient truth, to be shoved aside rather than valued. Instead of with value, instead of having valid, ever-present needs, this blind man was treated as such. And the blind man boldly ignores the crowd and cries out for Jesus all the more. And I know we've been looking at, at Mark's gospel section by section, week by week, and if you've been following with us, I hope, I hope you'll see and I want to show you that, that this Bartimaeus story should strike you. It's, it's a stark contrast to the stories that we've just read. In contrast to the rich young ruler who couldn't give up his possessions, Bartimaeus abandons his cloak, springing up, racing shamelessly to Jesus to follow him on the way, even the difficult way, to Jerusalem. And Bartimaeus, rather than being driven or, or blinded by possessions, by place, by ambition, like the rich young ruler, follows Jesus in gratefulness. Jesus' way becomes Bartimaeus' way. And the contrast is also seen in that Jesus uses the same words to ask Bartimaeus what is his request. The same words he, he had asked to the disciples just previously, saying, what do you want me to do for you? Well, the disciples answered that they wanted to be great. They wanted to have privilege and honor and prestige. But Bartimaeus instead asks Jesus for mercy and for help. Two pleas here are being contrasted in these chapters, one that's worthy and one that's not. And this, this is seeing, and this is not seeing, side by side. The irony that, that it's the blind man, the low man, who sees Jesus most clearly rather than, than Jesus' disciples, this rich young ruler who has position and wealth, rather than the religious leaders who are supposed to be leading Israel. And here we also see a wonderful invitation to prayer. Jesus asks Bartimaeus to state his request plainly. It's not a big surprise, I don't think, that, that a blind man would ask to be healed and to see, right? That's not a big surprise. But still Jesus invites Bartimaeus to say it aloud. 
And there's a lesson, I think, for us here that we can be negligent in bringing our requests to God in prayer. We ought not to assume that just because God is sovereign and over all things and knows our hearts, that he's powerful to save and eager to save, that there's no need for us to approach him. But Jesus here calls and invites us to prayer through this example of Bartimaeus, that even though it's obvious what Bartimaeus is going to ask, he still calls him to, to ask it. Even at times when we might not have or be able to formulate the exact words of our prayers, we too can cry out, help me, save us. And we can do this with confidence. Here we have this example, this wonderful proof that Jesus embodies what he's been teaching. His words are not empty words, but he demonstrates care for the insignificant, making the last first and the first last. It's historically Bartimaeus, whose name we know, not the rich young ruler. Bartimaeus has been put first, the ruler last. And so we see just an example that, that Jesus embodies his good teaching and his ethic. He's full of mercy, serving, and helping the desperate who can't help themselves. And this is Jesus. But yet there's, there's more to this passage than just, just a miracle and Jesus' kindness. The blindness represents, through all these contrasts, Israel's and our lack of understanding and our unwillingness to walk with and obey God, representing our sin. In Isaiah chapter 42, the blind are described as those who do not hear the word of God's servant. Israel, just like us, have failed. We failed by serving idols, idols of the heart. We've become blind. But God promises that the coming of the servant of the Lord, the Christ, will open the eyes of the blind in Isaiah chapter 42. That's a promise made 500 years before Jesus came. And Isaiah chapter 42 in verse 16 also promises not just to open eyes, but to lead and guide them. As he does for Bartimaeus, it's not just allowing them to see, but, but, but bringing them along and walking with us. It's not, I don't think it's too complicated. It's a familiar metaphor that we know, blindness, right? We've just sang it in, in amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see. And we need the Lord to open our eyes, but we also need him to lead us. And so after Bartimaeus follows Jesus, the scene in the passage quickly shifts. And we, we, we turn now to the ironic parade and the scene shifts to the Mount of Olives, a place overlooking Jerusalem, overlooking the temple. I, I have a friend who actually just sent me a picture from the Mount of Olives this week. And then he's standing on the Mount of Olives and, and sends this picture. There's a deep valley. And then there's, there's a mountain where Jerusalem is. But, but the Mount of Olives overlooks all of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is poised, preparing to enter Jerusalem, standing at the Mount of Olives. And it's the Mount of Olives where Zechariah chapter 14, 4 promised that the Lord himself would return 
through the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And now, at this point in the story, it's, it's Passover week. Pilgrims had been flocking and gathering to Jerusalem for Passover celebrations to remember the Lord saving Israel, right? Out of, out of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses and Joshua. And so, while the flocks of the pilgrims have gathered, Jesus too is finally approaching to Jerusalem, approaching now the temple. And it's now overlooking Jerusalem that Jesus instructs his disciples, as we read, to go into the village and borrow a colt or a donkey. And it happens, it all happens exactly the way Jesus said it would. And these are layers of details in the story that Mark includes to help us see more richly and more clearly who Jesus is. They're not just factoids that are included, but, but he, he includes them strategically so that we can see who Jesus is. That he's the Lord himself returning as promised. And it, at, this, at this time in the year, it's, it's almost Thanksgiving, so maybe you and your family, it's part of your tradition to watch the Thanksgiving parade. Is anyone, anyone used to doing that? Maybe some of you have even gone and attended it before. What a sight, what a, what a show, right? The, the crowds swarm in New York City. There's musical performances and marching bands and dancing and floats and giant balloons. And then it all ends with the climax that, that Santa Claus arrives in a sleigh. The season is here. He's finally come to town. But when Jesus enters Jerusalem, this scene, this parade, is not what you'd expect of Jesus, the Son of God, who calmed the storm, who brought sight to the blind and brought a child back from the dead. He's not riding into Jerusalem on a stallion, not on a chariot or, or a float. He's coming humbly on a donkey, on a colt. And he doesn't do this every year. But he came once and for all to die on the cross. But yet this scene, this ironic scene, can't compare to, to the pomp and the show of, of New York City, right? On a cold day, a cold Thursday, every November. There's no, no elephants. There's no golden camels, or peacocks, or menageries. But just Jesus, saddled on branches riding a colt, adorned in poverty, maybe with some fishermen. Hopefully, the blind man with him has found a cloak at this point. But he comes on this colt, humbly, not on a war horse, not taking Jerusalem by storm, not taking life, but giving his life as the Prince of Peace, as a ransom for many. The one who was first before all creation did not put himself first. The great one becomes the servant, serving not to be served. I hope you see what I'm seeing here. I hope you see this scene for what it is. This, or the, or the lack of all this pomp and show, helps us to see Jesus for who he is, as the one God promised long ago. And it's here, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, ascends the temple, that he assumes the title of Lord for the first time in the book of Mark. 
And with this, Mark is showing us that just as was promised in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, if you're taking notes, that the Lord himself would come to the temple. Besides Malachi, Zechariah also predicted this scene. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here in this scene, we, we have again seeing and not seeing Jesus. One scholar put it this way. He said, we don't understand Palm Sunday unless we perceive that viewed from the perspective of the crowd, it was a great tragedy. But in fact, it is a triumph and that Jesus enters Jerusalem and he comes to the temple evoking the hate of the leaders that he would come and die to defeat eternal death forever. And so this ironic parade does two things. It, it serves as proof of who Jesus is and of his kingdom. And at the same time, it demonstrates that Jesus' kingdom does not resemble any earthly kingdom. The kingdom of God does not come with great might as Jesus taught and as we studied over the summer, but almost unseeable like a tiny mustard seed. His promises and his teaching are being fulfilled and embodied. And so we turn now to the third section to briefly consider seeing and not seeing Jesus as we look at the praise of a king. Here in our, here in our passage, both Bartimaeus and, and the crowd identify Jesus with David. Bartimaeus cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And in both cases, Jesus doesn't deny or argue with, but he accepts these associations with King David. And so while the, the crowd exclaims, Hosanna, we know as Dexter shared this morning, that means save us or, or please save us. And it can be found in Psalm 118. But what do they mean? What do they want to be saved from? What, what is this that they're asking for? And the phrase that they use, blessed is the kingdom of David our father, this expression shows that what they're thinking of is this nationalistic, political restoration. And that their, their confession is blind. It's inadequate. It's not fully true. They attribute worth to Jesus, but not full worth. On Palm Sunday, this crowd cries to Jesus, king. But by Friday, they say, crucify him. And they prefer Barabbas, the insurrectionist, over the king of kings. We know that they don't fully see Jesus for who he is. And Mark tells us this in chapter 12, which we're not going to get to until after the new year. But, but it's worth pointing out now that Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, Jesus teaches clearly and plainly that, that he's not merely David's son, but he's David's Lord. Remember David, if you will, for a moment. David and his son Solomon 
who Solomon built the original temple, they and, and David's other sons failed. They failed hard. But God promised in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that the Christ would come, the son of David, and that this son of David would not be a mere son, but it would be God himself. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 is familiar. You know it. It says, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So however much the crowd understands, Mark writes in a way to clearly announce that, that Malachi and Isaiah and Zechariah's prophecies have been fulfilled here in this passage as, as Jesus, the Lord, is coming to the temple. So while the crowd started, at, started out strong, or at least it appeared that they did, in reality, their, their deepest interest was in this earthly kingdom. Their interest was to be the center of God's story, not, not to see Jesus be the center of it. But Jesus comes to establish the kingdom of God through his life, his death, and his resurrection, not just to save the nation of Israel, but all who will put their faith in him, as he invites. Even us, people from every nation, but we too can be like the crowd praising Jesus, right? For his grace, his gifts, his benefits, yet our hearts can be far from him and far from his ways. And so we too not only need to have our eyes opened, but we need to be led in Jesus' ways. So here in this passage, we have a very clear, a very clear answer to the cry of Hosanna. The crowd shouts, Hosanna, save us. But we have a, a very simple and a clear answer. And the answer is simply Jesus, whose name itself means the Lord saves. The name Jesus is the Greek version of, of the name Joshua, the Lord saves. And so the crowd wanted another Joshua. They wanted their revolution. But God sent a new and a much better Joshua, a better triumph. Because in Jesus, we have one who doesn't take life, but who gives eternal life. Who opens our eyes afresh to see the world and to see ourselves truly. And in Jesus, we have a God who, who saves us to the uttermost. Who saves us from things we see and even things we don't see. From him. We need not fear. He has earned and he gifts all who have faith in him with a kingdom, with a citizenship, much better than anything we know or even dare to ask for. It's a kingdom that includes the restoration of all things good forever. And the conquering is not the conquering of a nation but it's the conquering of the ancient enemy of death, the penalty for our sin. And he triumphed by giving his life as a ransom, by humbling himself, taking the form of a servant, by dying and being raised in your place to save your life. But this isn't to say that the only thing that we need from Jesus is the forgiveness of sins. It's not to say that it's the only thing he gives, but what we need is not just the truth about 
creation, salvation, and the gospel. But we also need his sanctification and his work and his leading. That we wouldn't just see him as an eternal insurance policy, but, but that he stands firmly for what is good and he guides us in it. We see that Jesus firmly rebuked Peter for wrong thinking. He became indignant at the poor treatment of children. And as we'll see next week, he overturns the tables of, of the temple because it's been turned into a den of robbers. And so what we need to see is not just to have our eyes opened, but also as Isaiah promised that he'd lead us and guide us to better see, to better love and embody what, what is good, to better embody love and joy and peace and patience and kindness goodness, gentleness, and self-control. To lead us to a new life, a new birth where we flee evil. We flee our participation in it, where we no longer live in self-centered pursuits, no longer viewing others as inconvenient or lowly, but with dignity and even with admiration and love. And God helps us he helps you to do this. The Holy Spirit works to bring fruit in your life. He gives you strength that you did not have, and he opens your eyes to love one another, to care for the marginal and the, the inconvenient and, and the desperate. And so therefore, you and I, we can, we can give ourselves, not just get for ourselves. We can endure and persevere because of the hope that we found, acting now in gratitude, with our eyes open to good. And so just a bit of a challenge that you and I, we can get on board with a Jesus that saves us and forgives us, a Jesus that gives us good gifts and comfort, but, but a challenge, can we, can we, will we let spring up like Bartimaeus to follow Jesus, to get on board with a Jesus that even corrects us in love, a Jesus who challenges us and stretches us, whom following will be uncomfortable and even costly, a Jesus who goes to the cross, a Jesus you might feel embarrassed of, who requires you and I to, to consider ourselves last, to put aside ambition and pride and pleasures and self-interest and workloads and entertainment and luxurious retirements, but to follow him. And I'm not saying all these, I'm listing them to burden you, but in the hope that we all might, might see more clearly, that we might be driven and recognizing the better way of operating in living in gratitude for what Jesus has done and in hope that this salvation the sight we've received would also be extended beyond us to those around us and those throughout the world. So as, as the band comes back up, I want to just help you see what Mark wants you to see. That like Joshua, Jesus began his path to victory through Jericho. He entered Jerusalem as the promised son and even the Lord of King David, to save and to rescue. 
and that this ironic scene, it's just the beginning of his triumph. And we know that and we're promised it in God's word. If you remember from Revelation chapter 19, that the rider who comes does not come on a donkey or a colt, but he comes finally on the magnificent white horse. And this, this rider is Jesus, who's promised to come again in total and everlasting triumph over all evil, saving and forgiving his people who look to him in faith, defeating Satan, making all things new, the high king of heaven, our victory won. And so Revelation describes his kingdom as one of all nations with no tears, no hunger, no pain, no sickness or blindness or poverty, and no evil. These are the promises of the Lord, and we have so much assurance that he fulfills his promises, don't we? And he also promises that in the meantime, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us, we pray. Help our children, help those around us with our blindness, with our need for you, with our unknowing, reveal more and more to us the truth of your gospel. Open our eyes daily to see it and to cling to Jesus. We pray that you'd not only open our eyes, but also lead us, save us from participation in sin and evil. Open our eyes to your ways more and more. Give us increasing gratitude that we might, like Bartimaeus, throw off whatever entangles us to follow you well wherever you lead. We pray that you would keep us. We pray you'd keep us like, we pray that you will keep those children around the world, 89 children who will receive the shoeboxes that no matter what life situations they face, no matter what life situations we face. May the, the hope, the truth of the gospel of Jesus prevail in our lives, that no matter what we face, we'll see your face when you come again.